Right, Chris? That's right, isn't it? We're, getting, we're trying to get him to write a book of all of the exisms. Wouldn't that be great? I'm, I'm writing that one down right now. Wait a minute, just a plumb line. All right, we're back to uh, Luke uh, 18, verse 9. The nice thing about going one verse after the other is I don't have to redo the introduction for you that Jesus had been questioned by religious folks about the kingdom of God and had told them that his plan was that the kingdom of God would be established within us. And then spoke to his disciples as well about the fact that there would be a a long period of time, a time of suffering, a time of waiting upon the Lord, a time of looking to see when he would come. When he would come, it would be like the days of Noah and Lot. There wouldn't be much anticipation. There would be a great falling away, if you will. That would be the way it would be in the days when the Son of Man was revealed. And then the Lord in verse 1 of chapter 18, as we looked at it this morning, taught them about praying for the intent that they shouldn't lose heart. Always prayer, not losing heart. This second parable that we begin in verse 9, notice it says, Also he spoke this parable to some who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous while despising others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners and unjust, adulterers or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. The tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. (laughs) This second parable, and it's tied to the first, and it certainly can't be yanked out of the context, focuses upon how we pray. And I found that, that so often you may start off very humble in prayer, but you can become very cocky very quickly. Seems like the more you learn, the more you know, the more you think of the world as being lost and you being found. You know, the whole attitude gets different, doesn't it? And we begin to look down our noses, we despise people, we, we, we are, we shake our heads at them. Oh, how could they do that? How could they be like that? We forget that that's what, that was what we were. And the only reason we're different is we've come to know Jesus and they haven't. The only distinction between you and the world is you've been saved. And so in, in context of prayer, and especially in the last days, there's, there's something to be said for the humility <clears throat> that has to drive you to your knees. And, and the, that we need not forget, we should never forget, that but by the grace of God, we would be in big trouble. And we're not hanging in here because we're better or smarter or good or more successful or more accomplished or more dedicated. We are here because God has great grace for us. And as we learn to pray, that's you've got to come to the Lord in that kind of humility and in that kind of mercy. You know, you got to protect yourself from becoming cynical. You have to be a gracious, merciful individual. And it always is reflected, I think, in the way that we pray and in the way that we, we, we approach the Lord. If the first teaching was on our diligence and our hope in the Lord, then this one tells us that, that prayer unwittingly can reveal a lot about ourselves and our position with the Lord. How you pray says a lot about you. You can, you can learn a lot about people the way they pray. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever, well, I, I, I was an English minor. I, was, I actually went to school to be a doctor. I 
got a degree from microbiology at UCI, and I was going, and I just had gotten in medical school when my wife passed away. I had two little kids, and <laughs> God's uh, clear direction was you're not going to be able to be a doctor, so I ended up being a pastor. Um, but I had a minor in English lit, and we had to read a lot of Tolstoy. Tolstoy wrote uh, Anna Karenina, wrote War and Peace, the book's like this big. Um, <laughs> he wrote a, a little small book called How Much Land Does a Man Need? And if you read all of those books, you'd say he's a great novelist. This guy had real insights into life. The problem was Tolstoy thought he was God. And, and, he, and he approached life that way. And so he looked down at literally everyone else as inferior. Well, he wasn't the last guy to look that way. Right? There's a whole world filled with folks that do that. But here as Jesus adds to his teaching to his own about prayer, he, he puts before us a guy like Tolstoy, if you will, who trusts in his own works, and, and as a result, he prays with much self-confidence, feeling he has earned some answer from God, while at the same time having to despise others to keep and maintain that position for himself. Um, one of the greatest deterrents to people getting saved is this whole attitude of, I can do it myself. It, it, if you can get by that, if you can get people to the point where they go, I can't do this by myself, they're real close to getting saved, you know? That's a, that's a step in the right direction, because the philosophy of man... Because of sin is, is, is one of, I'm good enough, I've tried hard enough, you know, that God will certainly accept me as I arrive. And, and the basis for religious men, and, and Jesus is talking, remember he started in verse 20 talking to the Pharisees. Um, <clears throat> the basis for religious men is self-accomplishment. When Paul wrote um, in Romans chapter, I think verse, let's see, Romans 10 probably, about the Jews, he, he, he said of them that they were, you know, they were diligent in their religious position and desire, but they were misdirected. They had great zeal, but they had no need for grace or mercy. They were very self-dependent and very, you know, self-confident and self-hopeful in, in their approach. Um, my only hope to get to heaven, and only, your only hope, is obviously the, the, the blood that Jesus shed at Calvary. That, that's our hope. That's your hope. That's my hope. That's that's what we believe, and that's that's our trust. Um, and yet, you find in these religious folks, and and I think Jesus, in telling the disciples this parable, warns them against going back to that first form of religion, that they might, in their approach to prayer, come with a humility and with a confidence and a dedication and a desire to meet with the Lord in such a way that they will always, in their waiting upon him to come, be men and women who are gracious and in need of grace. I love dependency in my spiritual life. I, I fight it with my flesh because I always want to think I can do it alone and I don't need anybody's help and I can get through it. But every time I go to pray, that all breaks down very quickly, doesn't it? In a moment's time, I close my eyes and I, I imagine sitting before the Lord and and all of that goes away. Now, if I open my eyes and look around, all of it comes back. But before the Lord in prayer is the place that you are most broken, isn't it? Or you become like this religious fellow. You know, there's a lot of people in their religion that are waiting for something from God that they are going to be greatly surprised with one day. But you and I, if we can be like this tax collector and, and find ourselves humbled, um, we will find that our prayer life will be very, not only very meaningful, but it will leave us very dependent. And, and gracious, not only receiving it, but giving it out. You know, the church should be gracious. I, I hate the thought of the, the world meeting a militant church. Because it doesn't, it doesn't represent the Jesus I know. 
I mean, he's, he's, he's a man's man, but he has all kinds of mercy, doesn't he? Kids loved hanging around with him. People liked to go to him. Tax collectors, <laughs> the vilest part of the society, they would just run to him. They wanted to hear from him and what he had to say. So, <laughs> Jesus makes the warning here to his people in this very short little parable about the attitude of the heart. And he compares two very interesting, I think, groups. He, he compares the religious man who's, whose complete confidence is in, in himself, but he has to add to that confidence the despising or the hating or the belittling of others. And then a man who has nothing to offer, has no place to stand, whose only hope for his life is in the mercy and in the grace of God. In verse 10, and again, this is the second parable, uh, verse 9, I should say, where the Lord explains the parable before he gives it. Those who trust in themselves to be righteous while despising others. And he says that these two men, the Pharisee and the tax collector, go up to pray, and the Pharisee prays with himself. And he says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. The problem for us, and I know that this parable in, in one sense is directed to the, to the religious man in the story, but every parable is given by Jesus to the saints. The parables tended to hide the truth from the unbeliever because God is gracious not to give them more to be responsible for. So, you know, the main message is to you and I, and, and this self-righteous attitude can creep into our lives as well. You know, I, I had a guy who, who uh, <laughs> had gotten saved, and then he was, we, we asked him to come and share with our men's group, it was 20 years ago or so, and he stood up and he said, you know, I got saved and I quit drinking right away, and so should you. And I thought, well, good for you, I guess. You know, and I remember getting saved and I quit drinking right away too, but I smoked for eight years as a Christian because I liked it. And I'd go to Bible studies and make people mad. You know, I'd go, hey, can I smoke here? Do you have an ashtray? And Bible studies, home studies. And they go, they always put me by a window, you know, and open it. And it took a long time for me to let go of that kind of stuff, right? But, but the folks around me were very gracious. And then there was this guy who would just, you know, he would be so proud of his accomplishments and all that he had done. And I'd go home feeling terrible about myself. As if somehow I hadn't earned what God had wanted to, you know, to do in my life, and I hadn't really measured up. And and then I got to Corinthians and got to read things like, "Who makes you to differ from one another?" And you know, what do you have that you didn't receive? And I began to to realize that God's just being gracious to me. He's He's puts up with my weakness and with my difficulty. Well, let's look here at verse ten. These two men going up to pray because the comparison. Excuse me, between these two men couldn't have been more radical. These are the two extreme men in a society in which they lived. The Pharisee held the highest reputation of piety and religious people. No one doubted that these were the men who were closest to the Lord. Jesus knew their heart, but the people honored these men, and I and I suspect that if they heard verse ten, they would have no problem saying the Pharisee is going to be the good guy in this story. The tax collector held the, the worst spot in society. They were hired by the Romans as Jews to collect money from the Jews. And then they made their money by adding to the exorbitant taxes an even greater fee so they could pay themselves. Not limited by the fact that they were hateful and, and selfish. You could just imagine how this whole affair would go. They were hated by everyone. They weren't embraced by anyone. They couldn't testify in court. Their, their word meant nothing. They made their lives by 
selling out their own people and then gaining from their misery. I, I think in, in our culture, the drug dealer or the pimp would be the tax collector of the day. They get money from using others. And that's exactly what these folks did. Um, they are the epitome in the, old, in, in the New Testament of the lost, the tax collector. You know, the Zacchaeus guy of Luke 19 who, who gets saved and immediately said, I'm returning 50% of everything I've taken. If, if you need to have more, you can have it back. Because that's the way he lived his life. John the Baptist in, in, in Luke chapter 3, when the publicans came, another name for the tax collectors to be baptized, and they said, Master, what, what should we do? And it was, it was John who said, uh, exact no more than what is appointed to you. Quit ripping people off, you miserable tax collectors. So that's kind of what their reputation was about. And, and even after that heavy message Jesus gave in Luke 14, just a couple of chapters back, about the tax collectors, you, you go back and you read in chapter 15 that it was the tax collectors who wanted to just get near him and hang out with him. So you have these two extremes, the ultra-religious representative and then the dregs of society who, who have no you know, place of standing within the culture. And they both do this. They both go to a place to pray to, to approach God. They both go to be heard on high. They both go where God is hearing in secret. And both of their prayers, God sets on display, right? These are things you wouldn't know <clears throat> had God not told you. I, I've always liked the Psalms because it, it the Psalms is like the, the the Facebook of the, you know, a thousand B.C. You get to listen in on what people are thinking and saying. Uh, it, it's the place you can listen to David praying in secret and, and watch what God does as a response. It, it, it's the, the insight that you don't get everywhere else. It's like the parable of the sower, the first parable that Jesus taught. And he said, here's where the, here's where the word of God, the, the seed falls. And here are the kind of hearts that it falls upon. You don't get to see that. But he pulls back the curtains and goes, this is what I'm seeing. And he closes it back up, right? Hard ground. Not such deep ground. Ground with lots of weeds. And then good ground. And where the word might grow. So here you get two men showing up to, to church, if you will, or to the temple to pray. And the Lord said, here's what they were praying. Here's what I was hearing. Here's what they were saying. Verse 11, the Pharisee stands and he prays like this with himself. Verse 13, the tax collector stands afar off, not even able to raise so much as his eyes to heaven, beating his breast. So on the one hand, you have the, the tax collector who comes in the door and just stops. On the other hand, you have the Pharisee who comes as close to the, the presence of God as he can get because he feels he needs to be there. He doesn't stand in the back. He walks up to the front. Right? He takes his pose. He takes his position. He has very great confidence. He's honored in public. Why not before God as well? After all, he deserves this place of honor. He's been very pious in his life. <coughs> we read in verse 11 the word God. And you might as well then just close the book because that's the last reference to him that you'll find. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Notice that this is the last word he responds. This is the last referral to him. This is the rest of the prayer is an effort to compare himself with others, all the while belittling them and raising himself up. First is comparison with others. But notice he doesn't bring up holy men. God, I thank you are not like Joseph or Daniel or Samuel or one of the prophets. He doesn't say that. He goes, thank you, Lord, I'm not like that guy back there. That. Uh, villainous tax collector back there. 
I thank you that I'm not like the extortioner. I'm not like the unjust man. I'm not like the adulterer. I suspect that you can always find people that you feel superior to. The, the sins of, of your life do look worse on others than they do on you anyway. But little does this Pharisee realize that in his prayer that, that he is despising a man who is on his way to heaven. And unless there's a radical change in his life, he'll never get where he thinks he's going. Right? Because certainly in the last days, we want to be sure we have a relationship with God based on the, the, the mercy and grace that we found in his son so that we, as we pray, can be merciful, can be gracious, and can be confident, not in ourselves, but in him. I love these words. God, I thank you. Really? I thank you for my own virtue. I thank you for my religious life. I thank you for my disciplined behavior. I thank you for my exemplary action. Thank you I'm not like these losers over there. I thank you that I'm here. In fact, Lord, you ought to be thanking me. We read this and we say, wow, we would never say this to the Lord. And I would say, yes, you will. You won't say it, but you'll think it. Because that happens in the church, you know. What do you think gossip is fueled by? It's self-righteousness, right? Or, or, or what backbiting or self-glorying or, or stepping on someone else to get ahead. Where do you think that comes from? That comes from the same thing. Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10, I guess, um, we, we would be foolish. We, would, we should not dare even to compare ourselves with ourselves, measuring ourselves by ourselves. That's, you you want to compare yourself with something, go stand next to Jesus. Hey, you come stand next to me, you can feel good all day long. <laughs> right? You come stand next to Xavier, you can be taller. <clears throat> all right, X, I'm pretty sure. You can feel like you king of the world. Go stand next to Jesus. See how you feel. Well, this fellow was just standing next to himself, right? It, it is only as we look at God's standard found in his son that we see ourselves clearly. And then we can view others in weakness with compassion as we pray. We, we can understand that as we seek the Lord, as we come to, to depend upon him, that we can respond to wickedness with goodness. That's the mark anyway, isn't it? Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to the Father. i got to be more like Jesus. That's my goal. That's my hope. Well, this Pharisee in verse 11 not only begins by finding his satisfaction in the weakness of others and how he feels stronger than them, but he then proceeds in verse 12 to make a list, a short list at that, of some of his accomplishments. Lord, not only am I better than others, I am more faithful to you than others. Let me list them for you, Lord. What a prayer, isn't it? God, you must be glad that I'm here. Your star pupil has arrived. I fast twice a week. I fast twice a week. By, by Jewish law, the Pharisee was obligated to fast once a year. This guy's an overachiever in the not eating department. Right? Leviticus 16, 29, it says, On the Day of Atonement, you fast once a, a year. The Pharisees, though, fasted on market days, Mondays and Thursdays. While everyone was out shopping, they were wandering around with long face looking pretty hungry. Oh, what are those grapes? Yeah, I can't have any of those today. Oh, those melons look wonderful. Oh, the sirloin. Maybe tomorrow. So self-righteous. So interested in the applause of others. They wandered around. Isn't that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't, if you fast, wash your face, man. Look like you've eaten a big meal, not like you're looking for a big meal. 
I fast twice a week. Oh, very good. And I give tithes of everything I possess. And in the other Gospels, we read that they even counted out seeds of spices, according to Jesus. And Jesus will say, well, yeah, you can do it that way if you want. Be that diligent. But but don't live out there and exclude the, the weightier matters of a lot of stuff like mercy and justice and loving God. You're going through all these exterior motions, but you're really not pleasing the Lord. I think it's in Luke um, chapter 11, just back a few chapters. You tithe of the mint and the rue and the herbs and all. You pass over judgment and the love of God. So this guy's not only belittling of others, he's very proud of himself. Notice that he began by calling upon God. He then quickly turned to the failures of others, and then he ended with his superiority of his call beyond duty of spiritual activities. This is not a guy who's going to do well praying. This is not a man who's met the mercy of God yet or the grace of God. This is a fellow who's filled with himself. And if the Lord comes, he's not going to have a good day. He's going to have a horrible day. He's going to be made aware of his own sinfulness. Five times in two verses he uses the word I. So proud of myself. Doesn't mention his sinfulness. Doesn't mention his need for God. He's aware of the Lord, but not of his holiness. He's aware of others and their sin, but not of his own. I always think about Isaiah. You know, he meets the Lord when King Isaiah dies. And he cries out, I am undone. <laughs> you know, I am a man of unclean lips. I come from a family in the midst of a people that are that way, and I've seen the king. Or Peter, when he recognized Jesus in the boat with him as being more than just a good man, but as God who had, because God had now done a miracle in Peter's place of greatest, you know, accomplishment, fishing. And he said to the Lord, get out of the boat. Get out of the boat. I'm a sinner. I can't have you around. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Luke, I think, chapter 5, early on. Just get away from me, Lord. So he prays to impress God and congratulates himself while destroying everyone else. No wonder, verse 11, Jesus said this man was praying with himself. Right? It never got past the ceiling. He's little Jack Horner sat in the corner. What a good boy am I. Yeah, maybe so. But not with God. And that's not the way that you and I should be praying in these last days. We need to be praying with grace and mercy and dependence upon God. Not upon self-righteousness or accomplishment. We don't deserve anything God's about to bring us. But we are so glad to have it, aren't we? Notice that by contrast, the tax collector stands afar off. Far away from the holy place entrance. Far away from the presence of God. He's in the place of worship, but only barely. He doesn't feel like he belongs here. He feels like he's an intruder. He's not sure what's going to happen to him. He's ashamed of himself. He's desperate to know God. He's acutely aware of his own sinfulness. And it hinders his approach. Two guys showing up to pray. He would not so much as raise his eyes towards heaven. That's a pretty, I think, descriptive term of someone who is aware of their guilt. Right? He feels unsure of his place. He wants to meet with God, but he has tremendous fear. He, he, he is brought to his knees, if you will, and his only hope is that God might be somehow merciful or gracious because if he is not, this is about to end right here. Such a different attitude, don't you think, between the two? You know, the one guy just standing up, praying out loud, and the other fellow just muttering away under his breath. He won't get near. He won't look up. 
He beats his breast. A, a cultural outward expression of grief that you find in the scriptures quite often. Admission of guilt. Lord, I'm a horrible sinner. I don't know how to be here. I don't know how to come here. And he was a horrible guy. He was a tax collector. But he wanted God's grace. His prayer is pretty short. It's only five words in Greek, actually. A few more in English to put them together. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Just give me mercy. And he uses the same word for mercy as is used in the Old Testament to describe that mercy seat, that place at the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies where the blood of the sacrifice was placed before the Lord and where it was then covering for the people in atonement. He wanted to benefit and draw near by his blood. Lord, just give me mercy. <clears throat> the church should be praying like this. We should not be so cocky. We are, we are standing by God's grace, are we not? And we are, I think that's why the Lord gave us communion to have as often as we have it to remind us of where we started. Communion will bring you back to the start of things, you know? Oh, yeah, this is where I remember where he died for me. It'll just kind of put you back in perspective and check your attitude and, and bring you back to the place you needed to be. God, just be merciful to me, a sinner. Look, his prayer shows hunger and thirst and earnestness and honesty and sorrow. It reflects the outlook of himself as he had uh, been praying, just in the same manner that the Pharisees' attitude about himself is, is put on display. The tax collector saw no one else but himself and his own failures before God. And then he wanted God's help. And we know God to be a friend to sinners. I think they accused him in Luke 7 of, of eating and drinking and being a gluttonous man and being a friend of publicans, right? Of tax collectors. <laughs> I was thinking about him and I thought, you know, he might have said to the Lord that day standing there, but Lord, at least I'm um, more honest than that tax collector because that tax collector was a real crook. And had this fellow had been looking for any way out, he might have just pointed, hey, look at that guy standing real close to you. He's a worse guy than I am. Hated by the Jews, barred from public service, like I said, unable to give a testimony in court, excluded from synagogue worship, a wealthy guy living a miserable life. You remember Zacchaeus, when Jesus came by, he climbed up a tree, I think probably so the people wouldn't get to him, I, I don't know. Plus he was really short, short guy with an attitude, that can't be good. Well, Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you that this tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other. And here's how you pray. Everyone who will exalt himself will find himself humbled. But if you humble yourself before the Lord, then you can be exalted. One man expected God to accept him for his accomplishments. And I, I don't know if you ever go praying and say to the Lord, Lord, I've been in church every week for a year. Or Lord, I've been tithing more than I ever have. So before I ask for what I'm going to ask for, let me just tell you what I've done for you recently or lately. And you give them a litany of things. You know, here's my accomplishments. I don't know if you've ever done that, but that's not a good way to go. One would go home with his sins blotted out as far as the east is from the west. Right? Isn't that what your record is in heaven? Psalm 103 verse, what is it, 2 or it's 12? No, I guess it's 12. Psalm 103 verse 12. As far as the east is from the west. That's how far God has separated you from your sins. 
Praise the Lord. Or Micah said in chapter 7, I think verse 19, he has cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. I'll go pray like that. I'll show up before God knowing that, right? That my sins are gone and, and he's the reason. And that I'm standing and he's the cause. And, and I can bring my petition to him because he cares and he's coming again. And I can do all of those things with that kind of humility. But if I ever find myself going to pray with, God, you owe me. Or God, you know what I've done for you. Or, or Lord, you saw my sacrifice. And remember when that man said something mean? I was going to punch him and I didn't. Lord, did you notice that? You know, that should be in my book. It should be on page like 11 or 12 of this month's accomplishments for me. God help us. God help us. The disciples needed to learn this. God looks for humility and for dependency from us. That is what he longs to find. Right? I want a contrite and a humble spirit that he wasn't despised. Pretty heavy. It's dangerous when you and I as Christians begin to to turn from his grace to some self-righteous religion. Right? It makes us blind to what he wants to do in our lives. He that trusts in his own heart is a fool, the Bible says. A fool. So here's the attitude of prayer. Not only that we would be hopeful and we would be encouraged and we would see that God is waiting to come, but that we would come to him daily with the humility that would lift us up. That would see our righteousness as filthy rags. <clears throat> that, that we would realize that, that, that no work of the law, no work of the flesh justified in his sight. That'll change the way you pray. You won't go making too many demands. You'll go with great hope, though, because God's for you, and he's not against you, and he, he wants to bless. Well, then we have these few verses that I want to add to the end of the story because they, it's a related story, and it begins in verse 15 with these words. Then they also brought infants to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Don't forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. You see, the disciples loved hanging out with Jesus, but they wanted to keep other people away. They thought they were doing him a favor. They were wrong. They were absolutely wrong. Because they liked this idea of religious hierarchy like everyone else does. Yeah, don't bother Jesus with your little crying brat. You know, Lord, let me just protect you. I'll keep him away. You go away now. The Lord's busy. And Jesus has to say, look, though they were anxious to protect him, they, they were often disturbed when Jesus was not disturbed. You remember when, when, when in Luke 9, they, the guys came and they said to Jesus, Lord, we found somebody casting out devils in your name, and we told him to knock it off because he wasn't one of us. Oh, thanks for that. That was real helpful, guys. And Jesus said, don't stop him. If he's not against us, he's for us. Right? Or when there was a woman who, where is it in Matthew 15, I think, who, who, a Canaanite woman from Tyre and Sidon, and she, she came and said, my, my daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. And, and, oh, Lord, son of David, if you could help her. And then it says the disciples said to the Lord, Lord, get rid of her. She's bothering us. Not exactly that merciful heart just yet. Or in Matthew 14, before the Lord fed the, the 5,000 plus the women and children, and they were in the middle of nowhere, and evening came, and it was a desert place. 
And the disciples came to Jesus and said, send everybody away. <laughs> Tell them to go into town. Get rid of them, Lord. Come on. So merciful, these guys, right? And it's interesting to me that they felt they were doing them a favor, but they were wrong. In fact, I think it was Mark ten fourteen. It says that Jesus was very displeased with them. It says he was much displeased. He said, you allow them to come, these little kids. So I think it's all part of the same equation as we pray. You know, we, we, we don't want to push people away from the mercy of God, do we? And, and, and you do that when you start to think you're better than they are. And it reflects in your prayer life. Um, the world needs to see a church that's, that's uh, hanging on by grace, not one that has found its large indoor voice outdoors, you know, and screams all the time. It's hard to be a good usher, you know. You, you have to rule with love. You have to provide direction and yet draw people in. Kind of like that with us. Jesus corrects his disciples and he says, let the kids come. This is what heaven's all about, right? Faith like a little kid. I love that whole lesson of kids being so dependent. You know, they're hungry, they cry. They're thirsty, they cry. They're wet, they cry. They're unhappy, they cry. It pretty much just let you know. I'm crying again. That's what I need. And, and they're so unworldly, you know. I watch my kids when they have kids. You know, they, they want to explode their kids. So they buy them ridiculous stuff, especially when they're little. And, and the kids, they don't want what's in the box. They want the box. Right? Put it on their head. They have an hour of fun in a box. Forget what you paid for, whatever was in it. You, you offer a kid a nickel and a dime. What does he take? He takes the nickel because it's bigger. I just want the bigger one. So, you know, unworldly. No prejudice. Everything's awe and wonder. It takes time to get jaded, you know. And they're so teachable, right? They're easy and, and eager to learn and pleasing their parents. Childlike in faith, not childish in behavior. So here's a contrast between two who come to pray. And, and, and not only do they come to pray, but, but the Lord's assessment of their prayer life. It, it's one thing how you come in. It's another thing how you go out, right? Do you go out of your prayer time and the Lord's saying, that's my boy, that's my girl? Or do you go out and the Lord says, I can't do anything with him yet. I've got to break his legs again and, you know, slow him down and help him through it. Father, this afternoon as we sit together, I know that, that as we pray, we are to, in these last days have tremendous hope and have an, a good awareness that you are, are waiting for a good reason, else you'd have been here already, and that you long to be with us as much as we long to be with you. But Lord, in the process of our times of praying and waiting and looking to you, may we have gracious hearts. May we realize that we didn't get in here on our own good looks or good accomplishments, that we don't... And, and, and can't claim to be a Christian Christ-like because we're so smart, but that we have met your goodness and your mercy. Uh, Lord, I think about Isaiah writing, of Father, your sending of your Son, that it pleased the Lord to bruise him so that by the knowledge of him many would be made righteous. And I think, Lord, we are just the product of your mercy. We, we are just so happy and, and enjoying life because of what you've done. And may we not find ourselves filled with ourselves when it comes to looking at the world around us as we shake our head at the sin that is so rampant. But may we not forget the love and the mercy of God, which can save sinners like us and just like those sinners around us. May you help. And would you help us, Lord? 
And as we're praying for a minute, maybe there are some of you here today that have not really been close to walking with God. You could maybe relate more to the Pharisee than to the tax collector that's broken. Your relationship with God has not been one of grace. It has been one of determination and and demand. And This is what I believe God owes me. And so you find yourself very frustrated because, you know, you never can really balance the books in your own heart. Know this. God gives you freely all things to enjoy. But, but, but know that it's His grace. And that if you look to Him, and, and rather than come with the demands and the, and the performances and the resume, just come with an open heart. God has great plans for you. He has great plans to bless your life. He wants you to seek Him with mercy and with grace, with tenderness and with dependence. The religious man does not go home justified. But the broken man does. And one day in heaven we'll be received into his glory because of what he did. And that we were then amazed by his goodness and wonder at his mercy. And like the prophets of old who didn't understand it or the angels who stand in awe as they watch God's grace, your prayer life will be transformed. You'll be, you'll be in a place where you can just See yourself for who you are. See him for who he is. And leave his presence with great joy, knowing what he's done. So if you find yourself there, look, just uh, you cry out, Lord, give me a tender heart. Be gracious to me, sinner. Forgive me. Wash me. Start over with me again. Today, that can be a part of your life. And God will do that right now. He'll do it right now. If you'll ask. So ask and see what he'll do. In Jesus' name, amen.